from Brown Cow Studios in Gallatin Gateway, Montana, this is News Nerds. I'm Ezra Graham. Today we have a show for the history buffs out there. Nearly 80 years ago, a historic conference took place in Tehran. The three leaders fighting against the Nazis in World War II, Roosevelt, Churchill, and Stalin, met in Iran after exhaustive planning and correspondence. They knew that the conference would help the three nations come together and agree on key issues in the war. The three leaders did not know, however, that as they made their way to Tehran, Nazi sympathizers would be in the city as well. In the new book, The Nazi Conspiracy, The Secret Plot to Kill Roosevelt, Stalin, and Churchill, Brad Meltzer and Josh Mensch tell the story of a potential assassination plot against the leaders. The book expands on the events of the Tehran Conference and answers how the leaders got to that point. It's a complicated story, and this week Josh Mensch stops by to help us understand it. Mensch is a documentary film writer, producer, and director who's worked with the History Channel, National Geographic, Discovery, and PBS. This is his third book written with Meltzer. It's Wednesday, January 18th, and this is News Nerds. Documentary film writer, producer, and director Josh Mensch has worked with the History Channel, National Geographic, PBS, and Discovery on stories from the start of jazz to the history of superheroes. Now he's an author of three acclaimed books, which he co-wrote with Brad Meltzer. His latest book is The Nazi Conspiracy, The Secret Plot to Kill Roosevelt, Stalin, and Churchill. The book details the Nazi plot to assassinate the big three and why it ultimately failed. Josh Mensch, thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm delighted to to be on your podcast. So what makes history a great story? Well, um, what makes history sort of in general a great story? I'd say that, you know, it's the the old cliche that uh, the truth is often stranger than fiction. And, you know, by studying history, it is just so full of incredible stories, uh, incredible characters, drama, romance, adventure, you name it. And it's also, of course, uh, educational uh, and informative to learn about our history, uh, as well as entertaining and gain some insight into our culture and and sort of who who we are now, which came from uh, the events of the past. So uh, uh, there's just always always more to learn and more to discover and more stories to tell from, from history. So this book, um, The Nazi Conspiracy, is mainly about Stalin, Roosevelt, and Churchill. So the the, the three at big allied leaders who were leading the, the front against the Nazis and the Nazis' allies. So how did you research all the narrative that went into this book? Great question. Uh, it took an enormous amount of research to tell this story. Um, partly because, you know, when we learned of this incident, this potential assassination plot against the big three allied leaders, uh, it was very confusing to figure out um, what was real and what wasn't. There's all kinds of rumors and speculation and misinformation about this story. It was very confusing to figure it out. Um, So a lot of research went into just determining what happened in our particular story. And then there was also a lot of research about just the bigger picture of the war. As you said, the stories of of the three allied leaders Roosevelt, Churchill, and Stalin—all very complicated people uh, with, comp, you know, co- very complicated situation. So we were trying to kind of convey to readers to give a general sense of the war, 
which is itself a vast and complicated story, to uh, explain the situation of these three leaders, which took a lot of research and explaining, uh, and then get in, into some of the particulars of our story. So you put all that together and it, it took uh, an enormous amount of research and learning to get to the place where we could even tell the story. So as I'm kind of thinking about the research that you did, I'm thinking, well, you know, back then we were allied with the Soviet Union, but now, you know, they're known for their secrecy and, you know, their tensions with the Western nations. Um, you know, in addition, the Nazis burned or destroyed a lot of the documentation that would have, you know, just uncovered a lot more about what actually happened um, on their end of the war. Did did those two factors kind of influence what you could find out and what you could write about and what you had to tell the reader, we're not so sure about this, but this is what we know? Uh, that's a terrific question. Um, and yes, two of you know what should be the main sources of information for our particular story, which is about a, a, a potential Nazi plot to assassinate um, the big three leaders uh, in 1943, and the plot was at the time discovered by the Soviet intelligence service. So the, the two key sources of information would be the archives of the Nazi party and the Nazi intelligence services and the archives uh, of, of the Soviets uh, and their intelligence services. And those happen to be two of the most unreachable and difficult areas in all of, hist of world history. Uh, in the case of the Nazis, destroyed almost everything and, and were also extremely secretive with important documents, even before they destroyed everything at the end of the war. And then the Soviet system, which is just famously confusing and, and secretive and full of misinformation and propaganda. Uh, so it was very hard to try to discern what actually happened. And so in the book, as you say, we often say, here is something where we're just not sure what happened, or there are different theories, and, and we'll sort of talk the reader through a couple of different possibilities for what happened uh, in cases where we don't know exactly what happened. Now, then we also had access to uh, a lot of information and documents in the U.S. archives and the British archives, which did provide uh, some very important information as well. So I have one more question about kind of the formation of the book, and then we'll get into the plot and what actually happened. So, you know, Brad Meltzer is, is, he does a lot of books about similar subjects. You two have done two previous books about other plots um, in world history, but he does nonfiction books and you do documentaries, which, you know, are also nonfiction, but how did you guys meet and how did you ultimately partner to do three books? Well, that's a good question too. Uh, he was originally primarily a fiction writer um, and he still is. He writes thrillers, fictional thrillers, uh, novels. And but a lot of them are sort of related to or in the world of government agencies, or some of them are set in in the U.S. National Archives, which is uh, an organization that houses historical artifacts. So his fictional work kind of was related to American history. And then, I was working in, as a television documentary uh, director and producer, and we ended up collaborating on a TV show. This is where we met called Lost History for the History Channel. So we did this TV show together and we met each other and got along well. And um, I did some of the writing that he would read on camera. So he got, got to know my writing. And 
after our show ended, we went our separate ways. A couple of years later, he called me out of the blue and said, I'm interested in starting to write some real nonfiction books, uh, nonfiction history books, full length. And he was looking for someone to uh, collaborate with. And he kind of thought of me and, and called me and and suddenly uh, I was writing books instead of making making TV shows. Okay, so let's get into, you know, the historical side of the book. Um, the big three, when we're referring to the big three, we mean Stalin, Churchill, and Roosevelt. Um, but but when the big three weren't uh, at war against the Nazis in Italy and Japan, um, what did their correspondence look like? I mean, I mean, I know that Roosevelt died not even um, after the war was over, so uh, he didn't have correspondences with the other two after the war but you know he was president before the war started churchill was prime minister again after the war ended and stalin had a very long reign so there was a lot of overlap after and before the war where you know they would have had to communicate with each other do you do you have any sense of what that communication looked like uh i mean that's a, a complicated question but but yes um before the war it was a very difficult alliance because before the war, England, uh, Great Britain, and the United States both had a very rocky relationship with the Soviet Union and with Stalin's regime. Particularly, Churchill really did not like Stalin, did not trust Stalin. He was very much an anti Churchill was very anti communist, and this was, uh, you know, a communist government in the Soviet Union. So they would not have been natural allies at all. And at the very start of the war, the Soviet Union, Stalin actually made a pact with, with Nazi Germany because they had some shared interests and they invaded Poland together. So Stal Stalin and the Soviet Union were not really, in fact, were not at all on the side of, of the Western powers of, of the United States and Great Britain and initially France. Uh, so once Hitler kind of double-crossed Stalin and invaded the Soviet Union, suddenly the Soviet Union and the United States and Great Britain were on the same side, even though they had not been getting along before the war started and had a lot of reasons not to trust one another. So one of the great challenges of the war was for these three countries, these three nations, and these three leaders to work together even though Stalin was sort of the odd one out because he had not had friendly relations with uh, the Western democracies uh, before the war. So it was a very complicated alliance right from the beginning. Do you think that the alliance that they created lasted after the war? Did it go farther than when the war was declared to be over by the allies and you know everybody went their separate ways? Well, unfortunately, no, the alliance did not last. And it was sad because Roosevelt, while he was still alive, had high hopes that the United States and the Soviet Union could forge a good working relationship after the war and could be partners in the post-war era. Unfortunately, that was not the case. Uh, as soon as Roosevelt died and the war ended, not as soon as, but pretty quickly after things deteriorated, between the Soviet Union and the Western powers. And a lot of historians think, or some historians think that Roosevelt was sort of naive in, in that he believed that the Soviet Union could be a positive force in the world. And that in fact, Stalin 
turned out to be a leader who committed atrocities and did a lot of terrible things um, and really was not a good player. Uh, so it was really just an alliance during the war. And then after the war, for lots of different reasons, things fell apart and the United States and Soviet Union became enemies. And then that was the start of the Cold War. A lot of the book is uh, has a lot of the communications between the big three because they wanted to meet together. Churchill and Roosevelt had met at least twice before the 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 big three uh, meeting, but you know they had never been in the same room together through the war, and they wanted to because communication at the time I was I um, was thinking must have been very slow. There was also the threat of uh, interception of their messages, and um, you know things were happening so fast that that those the, that way of communicating just wouldn't have been as effective. But how did the the big three communicate without being intercepted, or was that even possible at that time? Well, uh, you're absolutely right that communication was, you know, compared to today, was much more difficult and slow. Um, they did write each other a lot of messages, cables they sent that would, you know, could travel across the world. Um, but, you know, they would often take a little time and they would sort of cross each other. It wasn't instant. And as you say, there was always the danger of interception uh, by the other side. And in fact, you know, we learned in researching the book that several communications between the Allied leaders were intercepted by the Nazi intelligence surfaces. Uh, so it was not a, a, a fail-safe way to communicate. So for all those reasons, Roosevelt really wanted them to meet in person, the three of them to meet in person. Churchill did too, but Roosevelt really wanted it. Uh, and in addition to the reasons we talked about, Roosevelt felt that if they could be in the same room together, they could they could just work out problems in a way that wasn't possible, you know, writing long-distance letters. They thought they could really just face-to-face -face hammer things out and uh, and and really set an agenda on the war. And in particular, Roosevelt and Stalin both really wanted the Western powers to attack um, France from across the English Channel from from England. And Churchill was was hesitant. He was he kept delaying it. And so Churchill felt the only way to really make it happen would be if they all got in the room together and they could kind of force the issue. And, and come to an agreement right there in the room. While they're communicating, there's a lot of issue from Stalin about uh, his part in the war. You kind of lay out three main sections of the world that we're fighting. The Eastern Front, which is where the Soviets are fighting the Nazis who invaded uh, Russia. Uh, the Pacific Front, which is where Japan and the U.S. are fighting. And then the Southern Front, which is where the United States and Britain are fighting against, um, you know, uh, Nazis and other allies of the Nazis, including Italy. Um, you know, Stalin thought that they were making a mistake by fighting in the southern part of the world. He thought that they needed to go across the English Channel as soon as possible and help them out, basically divert troops from fighting against the Soviets so that those troops would fight against American and British forces that were invading Western Europe. But do you think that Stalin realized that, you know, 
lots of supplies and weapons that were being supplied to his armies were being given to Russia through these routes that Britain and the U.S. were defending. Uh, wow, you just did a terrific job of kind of giving an overview of, of the war and the different fronts. Uh, you explained it just about perfectly. Um, and, you know, yes, Stalin was very eager for the United States and Great Britain to hit Nazi Germany in Western Europe. Um, and it's understandable because uh, the Soviet Union was just getting absolutely devastated in this war. Uh, Nazi Germany invaded and just caused so much destruction uh, that it, it's just unbelievable that the country survived. And so many millions died and entire cities were demolished, devastated. And they did it, they did so, the Nazi armies did so in an absolutely brutal fashion, just slaughtering civilians. Of course, we all know about the terrible worldwide genocide against the Jewish people that was happening on Soviet soil. So they were just getting brutalized. And st from Stalin's point of view, sort of going to the South and, and fighting against Italy just seemed like it wasn't really helping him that much. Um, now, he was very thankful for all of the armaments and arms and supplies coming from the United States. But what he really wanted was for, for the U.S. and, and British armies to actually attack Nazi forces in Europe, because that would divert some of the, the German forces away from the Soviet Union and to Western Europe, and so that the Soviet Union would have a better chance of fighting off this invasion. So it's very understandable why Stalin wanted what he wanted. Now, as you point out, Churchill believed, and Roosevelt believed too, that there were a lot of advantages to fighting against Italy in the Mediterranean, you know, what you call the Southern Front. Uh, and it did protect shipping lanes, and it did have some strategic advantages. And it also had the advantage when it happened of knocking Italy out of the war, which was quite dramatic. And when that happened, Stalin kind of grudgingly accepted that there was value in what they were doing, that knocking Italy out of the war was a big blow against Nazi Germany, uh, certainly in terms of morale and in terms of how the whole world was viewing the war. So he did ultimately see that there was value in it, but mostly he was incredibly impatient and he, he was quite angry that it took them so long uh, before they finally, his allies were finally ready to actually take on the Nazi armies uh, instead of just focusing on uh, Italy and, and the Mediterranean. Right. And I think as you and Brad write in the book, Stalin was, you know, not as happy as if the British and the uh, Americans would have invaded, uh, occupied Europe. But, you know, he was still a little bit glad that he had the weapons and supplies that were being given through, you know, routes through the southern front that was being occupied by his allies. That's, um, you know, an interesting uh, look at his his type of leadership. But, you know, it's understandable considering all the, the lives lost and the millions of lives lost compared to, uh, you know, American and British armies. But I want to move now to the the meeting. They wanted a meeting. They wanted to have all three of them there. It's more complicated than, you know, somebody might think because they can't decide where to host the meeting. And you kind of feel like you're caught up in a tornado as you read all these correspondences and all these proposed locations and, you know, what's wrong with each one. 
But can you in in brief just explain the debate over where to host the meeting of the three leaders? Yes, it, it got very complicated and and most of it was coming from Stalin. Stalin kept delaying the meeting and he kept coming up with reasons to reject every possible location. Uh, I mean, as you said, there are about 20 proposed locations. And for one reason or another, everyone is rejected or there's some problem with everyone. For the most part, Roosevelt and Churchill keep agreeing to meeting places and Stalin keeps changing his mind and saying, no, we can't meet there. And the fact is, it, it what you kind of realize is that Stalin really wasn't so eager for this meeting at first. He was very busy fighting the war. He didn't like traveling. He didn't want to leave the Soviet Union. Uh, he thought he didn't quite understand why it was so important for them to get together in person. Uh, and he never says that, but you just start to feel it because he he kind of does everything he possibly can to avoid the meeting. But eventually he does get with the program and he, and he does see the value in it. And he finally agrees to meet, but then he keeps changing where he'll meet and he makes it as inconvenient as possible for uh, for Roosevelt, who is forced to travel all the way across the world. At that time, it took about two weeks to travel across the world right. uh, to go to, uh, I'm sure you're getting to this, but to, to eventually go to Tehran in Iran, which is very close to the Soviet Union and very, very far from uh, from the United States. So Stalin wants to go to Tehran. That's where he wants to go. He kind of won't budge from that. But wouldn't it be in his best interest to kind of, you know, be more agreeable? Because the whole point of the meeting was to kind of firm up some dates for the invasion of Western Europe. Is Wouldn't that be in his best interest? That's a great question. And you're absolutely right. It was in his best interest. And he really did want this invasion to happen. So it's a little puzzling why he was so reluctant. Um, now, at the same time, he he was always thinking strategically, and he needed the Allies, but the Allies needed him too. They were always afraid that Stalin would somehow break the alliance or come to some agreement with Nazi Germany, where they kind of divide up the land and, and, and don't involve the U.S. or Great Britain. So uh, the U.S. and, and Churchill and, and Roosevelt were always nervous that somehow Stalin was going to do something that would help himself, but not really help the alliance, or that the war would end in a way that helped the Soviets, but not uh, the U.S. And the, and the Great Britain. So there was a lot of distrust, and Stalin might have had some other agendas for his delaying, and he also liked to exert power. Uh, one reason that comes out for him being so difficult is just that he wants the other people to squirm. He wants to exert his will and he wants to show that he's sort of the one in charge. Uh, so some of it is just a bit of gamesmanship where he's sort of making them kind of beg for the meeting. And then he insists that it's on his terms. So part of it could just be sort of a power play on his part to make sure that they know that it's kind of he's in charge and it's up to him. So at this point, it's 1943, it's the it's the fall of 1943, and the three leaders seem to kind of be agreeing that they could go to Tehran and have the meeting there. Um, and once they actually have the, the travel plan set, um, th I think this is an interesting point. Um, the, the three leaders all choose to bring different people with them, different advisors and different confidants that they, they felt that they could trust. What does that say about them? 
I mean, for one thing, uh, a, a, an international summit like this is a very big operation. And a lot of people come from all the countries because you need all the ambassadors, you need all the high level officials, you need uh, the military leaders, because part of the point of the conference is so that those high level people can talk and that all the key people are there. Uh, but that makes it a very big operation. And there's a lot of danger because any one of these people could, uh, you know, if they take a wrong turn or if there are dangerous elements afoot, you know, all of their lives are at risk and they have to try to keep the whole thing top secret. Um, and so they all bring, in addition to military folks, they bring various intelligence people, in the U.S. case, the Secret Service, and each country has its kind of own version of the Secret Service that's whose job it is to protect the leaders, um, you know, and, and, and these are armed people who's, who are kind of looking for bombs everywhere and have to kind of look around every corner to make sure that everyone is safe. And the security required is just absolutely huge. And this is in the middle of a war and there's spies everywhere. So you can just imagine how complicated it is to put together this, uh, this, this summit and all the people, the different uh, people that have to come with the leaders. And that includes some very high level, high ranking intelligence officials who then become sort of uh, part of this plot that we, we, we talk about in the book. Yeah, let's get to that plot because, um, you know, it's a central part of the book. You all through the the whole book, you talk about kind of the lead up to the Tehran meeting and what's actually happening on uh, the the streets of Tehran as the big three are planning to meet. So while the big three are planning to meet, what's happening in Tehran and what are the Nazis doing um, that would kind of thwart the efforts of the big three? Yeah, so you're getting right to the point. So just by coincidence, in the city of Tehran, in, in the year leading up to this conference, there had been a very active underground Nazi spy network, um, in particular led by one person who we talk a lot about in the book named uh, Franz Meyer. And he is someone who was originally went to Tehran when Nazi Germany was friendly with and sort of controlled Iran, but then the allies took over. And so this Nazi spy who was in Tehran had to go underground and go start wearing disguises and he, he created this sort of underground network of Nazi sympathizers in the city of Tehran. Um, and he was quite active. And eventually he was able to communicate back to Berlin that he was still there, even though the Allies were now controlling the region. This one Nazi spy and, and, and his group was still in Tehran. They were still active and they wanted more people and more weapons and more money and more supplies. Berlin gets the message. And in the spring and summer of 1943, right before this conference, they start sending planes and dropping paratroopers, Nazi paratroopers, to join this network in Tehran. And it's just sort of coincidence that Tehran ends up being the site of this summit, um, this huge allied summit. And Nazi Germany, meanwhile, is developing a network of spies and weaponry in the city of Tehran at that same time. So when, when Nazi Germany learns that the allies are going to meet there, they almost can't believe their luck because they already have this underground spy network uh, in the same city where this uh, big summit will take place. What do the big three know about the Nazis stationed in Tehran? I mean, what, what are their levels of 
understanding of this plot and how do each how does each leader's understanding of the plot differ uh that's a terrific question um they don't know too much now there is very active british intelligence in the city of tehran but they have to share duties with the soviet um uh, intelligence groups so it's it's a bit confusing and not all of the information is shared they do know that there is an underground sort of Nazi network operating in, in the city, but they don't know how serious it is and they don't know what to think of it. And it is the British who, who are able to arrest this one spy leader, Franz Meyer, in the months just before the conference. But um, Nazi Germany doesn't know that this person has been arrested. So in a way, the British feel like they have the situation totally under control, but the Nazis still believe that they have really good contacts in the city of Tehran. And so that's what kind of motivates them to think that they can pull off, you know, a spectacular incident, like potentially an assassination during this summit. So each group knows it's interesting. Each group knows certain things, but they don't necessarily know what the others know. The, the, the Nazis don't really know what the Soviets know. The Soviets don't entirely know what the British know. The British don't know what the Germans know. The U.S. doesn't, you know, so they're all kind of sharing information, but they also don't have a complete picture. I, I think going to Tehran, uh, I think uh, the U.S., Churchill and FDR, they didn't quite realize the extent of the potential danger there. The Soviets maybe had a better idea of it, but they were confident they could handle it. And meanwhile, Nazi Germany believes that they're in a great position to, to pull off something uh, spectacular uh, that could change the course of the war. Were there any other attempts to kill either one of uh, either of the big three during the war besides the one that you met, that you sent to the book around? You know, there not, there were no attempts that got were close to being su successful. And then there are some that are a little bit where it's a little bit unsure what the motivation was. One story we tell in the book is of uh, a British passenger airline that German planes shot out of the sky and it was in protected, you know, neutral uh, territory. So the Germans should not have been able to, according to the kind of agreements, shoot a passenger plane. It was, uh, I believe, over Portugal. It was traveling from Lisbon. The theory is that they thought, the Germans thought that, that Churchill was on the plane uh, because they had some agents at the airport and they saw someone who looked like Churchill boarding this passenger plane. And so they just went ahead and tried to shoot the plane down, which certainly would have been an assassination. It turned out the person they thought was Churchill was actually, uh, of all things, a movie producer who you know was there with his people getting on the plane, who just happened to look a lot like Churchill. Now, some people disagree whether that's really what the Germans were trying to do when they shot down this plane. Some people believe they were trying to get Churchill. Others think that there were other reasons why they were shooting down the plane. No one really knows for sure. But that's one example of an assassination attempt. Uh, there were also several attempts on Hitler's life, mostly from within Germany, but also a, a, a British plot to kill him at one point. And as we also tell in the book, um, the Americans assassinate one of the top Japanese leaders, an admiral that's very much an assassination. So assassination was definitely a tool of war. 
there were some sort of misguided early Nazi attempts to potentially get to get to Roosevelt in America, but that would have been really, really hard. And and the attempts that they they tried didn't really get very far. Uh, but it was certainly something that they all thought about. All of their lives were in danger, and assassination was definitely a tool of war. No question about it. At the end of the book, uh, you you explain some of the doubts regarding whether an assassination plot was ever in the works in Tehran. Um, you know, it really depends on who you're asking. And I think that will kind of always be the case, considering that it was so long ago and that a lot of the, the parties involved are either dead, won't talk or didn't talk. Can you explain some of the doubts uh, about an assassination attempt? Sure. So, yeah, there's there's a lot of debate about this plot, and a lot of it comes down to sort of who you believe. The way things happened when the when the Americans and FDR and the Americans arrived in Tehran, it was their Soviet counterparts who approached them really literally the night before the summit was to start and said, uh, hey, Americans, there are Nazi agents here who want to kill the, the three leaders. So uh, our lives are in danger. They said that you know Roosevelt's life was in danger, and for that reason, they urged the Americans to move across the city of Tehran from where they were staying to be in the Soviet embassy instead of across the city, so the leaders wouldn't have to drive back and forth through the middle of the city uh, when there were potential Nazi assassins floating around the city. So they all took it very seriously, and the Americans, literally the morning of the conference, had to do this big elaborate move across the city. So they all believed it was real. But a lot of it depends on whether ultimately you believe what the Russians said. There are those who think that or who speculate that the Russians kind of made up the plot and were just trying to get the Americans in the Soviet embassy so that Stalin could eavesdrop on them, like literally bug the rooms where, where Roosevelt was staying. Or it's possible that they did know about a Nazi plot and that they did have really good intelligence and they had evidence. Uh, and it's not totally clear which is which. Now, what we do in our book is we we look at the whole picture, everything that was going on, the Nazi underground network in Tehran. We follow what information Berlin was receiving, and we put all the pieces together and say that while it's impossible to know for sure, we came to the conclusion that there really was danger there. And we don't know exactly how serious the plot was, but we believe that the Nazis were definitely up to something. A lot of the pieces were there and that it, it just seems a little unrealistic that the Soviets would just blatantly lie to the Americans and the British at this summit when, when Stalin had so many reasons to want to count on them and he was trying to convince them to help him in the war. So why would he just blatantly lie to them like that and, and risk being found out? So at the end of the day, there are doubts, but we kind of believe that there was some real danger there. Josh, thank you so much for talking to me about the book. Good. Well, thank you for reading it and for asking such uh, really thoughtful, smart questions about the book. I can tell you, uh, you really read it thoroughly.
That was my interview with Josh Mensch. His book, The Nazi Conspiracy, The Secret Plot to Kill Roosevelt, Stalin, and Churchill, which he wrote with Brad Meltzer, was published earlier this month. Nerds is produced and hosted by me. We're on the web at newsnerdspodcast.com where you can catch up with episodes that you missed, subscribe to our newsletter, play our daily mini crosswords, and contact us. Find News Nerds on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. And while you're there, please leave us a review. We're also on community radio station KGVM every other week at 5.30 p.m. Mountain Time. They're at kgvm.org or 95.9 FM on your radio. Consider supporting them by going to kgvm.org slash support dash kgvm. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you next week.